And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, father and son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began, they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your, your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that I, all that I have, all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our heavenly Father, would you bless us now through your word? Not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to believe it, that we may live it through our hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anyone who should be totally confident about his life, it's Paul McCartney. I mean, Paul McCartney is one of the most amazing people. Sir Paul, right? I mean, before I was even born, the Beatles had broken up. Think of how many songs we still sing in the American Songbook, filled with, with so many incredible songs. There are so many songs that you don't even know were Beatles songs. 
So why would, why would Paul just a few years ago be in such a dispute with Yoko Ono over whose name came first, whether John Lennon's name or his name on the songs? Why would he be so up in arms and so much in dispute about whose name came first? And somebody asked him about that in an interview a few years ago, and he answered the question correctly. He said, well, the reason that I'm reacting this way is because I'm human and I'm insecure. He said that. He said, everybody's insecure. And he starts naming American presidents. He said, and one of them in particular, he paused, he said, very insecure. We would all agree with that, but that's a different sermon. Here's somebody who, by all external measures, an incredible person, a delight, everybody says, to be around. An artist, incredible businessman, wealthy beyond measure. He has every reason to be totally confident about himself and about his life. I mean, if Paul McCartney can't have confidence, looking back on his life and a sense of satisfaction, who can? Who can? The reason that he felt insecure is the reason that we gather here week after week after week. We sense, we know that there's something wrong with us. There's, there's a brokenness. And, and we, don't, we don't come here to wallow in, in guilt. We don't come here to, to, to rub salt in that wound. We don't, we don't come here to, to say, oh, woe is me. We, we come to acknowledge, to look at the brutal facts with unwavering faith, to say, what is the reality here? The reality is, is that humanity is broken. And we need to be restored and that does happen from the inside out. And so the question becomes then, how do we find, how do we get a second chance? How do we find new life? How do we find a new start? Because, you know, that's, that's what we're all looking for. We're not just looking for the next achievement. Because look at all that, that somebody like, 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 like Paul McCartney has, has, has achieved. One more accolade won't do it. It has to be something that happens within. And so let's take a look at the ways that we try to find that fresh start, the way that we try to find new life, the way that we try to find the good life. You know, we think, who's living a good life? And, and you look at, at the external measurements and you realize we need not just to try harder, we need a fresh start. We need new life. There are three different ways that, that emerge from this famous story that we call the prodigal son. Three different ways that we try to find the good life instead of finding new life. Let's take a look at following the rules, breaking the rules, and then ultimately following the ruler. Those are three different ways. I mean, if you look around, you say, well, what are the ways that we can deal with our humanity? What are the ways that we can deal with our brokenness? What are the ways that we can, we can get to a place where we have peace with ourselves? Well, we can be a rule follower. We can be a rule breaker. Or we can follow the ruler. First, you can be a rule follower. A rule follower, right? Like the Pharisees, like the older son in the, in the story. That was me. I was a rule follower. 
I was, uh, I was a people pleaser. I just I wanted everybody to like me. I wanted to be okay. I wanted to make sure that everything was good, that everybody was good with me. And I was a rule follower. Uh, I grew up in a, in a home uh, where we, had, we attended church. And uh, I've, I've probably told some of you before that I was pretty buttoned up. Okay, so on Sundays... Uh, you know, my father would, uh, would dress us in our Sunday best. And so those of you who are students, you know, if you, if you complain about having to put on shoes and socks, you know, like you wanted to come barefoot, you know, take a look at this picture. This is what I had to wear going to church. Okay, so that's my, that's my older brother on the left. <laughs> I eventually inherited those pants. Uh, and that's my sister, my younger sister. And then there's, there's me on the right uh, in my, my little get up there. So, uh, yeah, starch collars, tweed jacket every Sunday. You know, I was, okay, that's enough of that. Please get that out. <laughs> I was a rule follower. And, you know, a lot of times we think, you know, that's what we have to do. We've got to make sure that our good outweighs the bad. Our good outweighs the bad. If you, if you ask most teens, and, and there's a survey not long ago, a survey of most teens, what they believe is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, let me unpack that for a minute. Most teens today, now, they wouldn't call it that, but, but if, if, you, if you ask them to describe what they believe about God and about themselves, they would say what amounts to moralism with a little bit of therapeutic sort of feel-goodery in it, and then, and then sort of God at a distance. There's a distant God out there, and he wants us to be basically good, so don't kill anybody, and then try to, try to do good things, you know, but, but, but whenever you need them, you know, just call out to them. Doesn't that about describe what you think that, that I mean, most, most young people believe? And that's kind of where I was, and so I was, I was sort of trying to pile up good deeds to make sure that they outweighed my bad deeds, you know, where do we see this today? We see this today running rampant. Self-righteous people everywhere. It used to be just in the church. That hurts, doesn't it? So, but today, the moralism is everywhere in the form of virtue signaling. Have you heard this term? Virtue signaling? It's when, it's when you take a cause, and maybe it's a great cause, but you're having to signal to everybody that you're on the right side of history. You're a good person. You stand for the right things. And so you're constantly shaming other people that you think are, are worse than you. So that why? So that you can feel better. That's a very fragile place to be. It's a very sad place to be. It's a very competitive place to be. You're trying to use morals to feel better. It's therapeutic, moralistic, therapeutic deism. God is at a distance somewhere, and we just have to pile up good deeds. And not only that, it, it, see, it doesn't work. It doesn't get in. And so we have to signal to everybody that, that we've, got, uh, we've got the answer to that cause. The problem is, is that a lot of these causes really do need an answer. They need us. They need our leadership. They need our involvement. But you name any cause today, and if, if you put yourself in it and the purpose of your championing that cause, your purpose in championing it is you, you're going to mess it up. So will I. You see, if I'm driven, if I'm driven to feel better about my brokenness and so I take on this cause, I'm going to hurt the people I say that I'm there to help. 
I've seen, I, I mean, I've seen this saturated in the media in the last two weeks. All of the causes that have bubbled up. People virtue signaling. They're saying they're for this cause. But are they really helping the people that they, they say they're there to help? Or are they signaling to the world that they're okay? You see, if you're a rule follower, in order to be okay with God, in order to be at peace with yourself, it's a fragile place to be. It's a burden. You're in charge of your salvation? Oh, that's a fragile place to be. That's where I was. I was a covenant child. Grew up in a Christian household. Prayed to God. Took communion. Believed in Jesus. But it wasn't getting in. Now, maybe there was a mustard seed. Maybe there was a mustard seed. And, and I, I tend to think that there was. But I wasn't awake in the faith. I wasn't awake. I wasn't aware of all that God had done for me. I was the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I was virtue signaling to everybody. I was, I was at home in the church. But I didn't realize that I was present with the Father. And the Father was present with me. I didn't realize all that I had inherited. I was just simply trying to do it on my own, and it was a burden. And you know what? I got tired of it. <laughs> I got tired of it. Arthur Miller puts it this way. You know, uh, I love this, uh, this little quotation from Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God. He quotes Arthur Miller, a playwright. You know, in the place where where you where, where where grace, where you are a graceless person, you don't have a sense of God's presence in you and forgiveness in you. You want a verdict to be spoken over your life. You're virtue signaling. You're in charge for your own salvation. You want somebody to pronounce you okay. You're not at peace until somebody pronounces you okay. This is from Arthur Miller's play, the character Quentin. And after fall says, for many years I looked at life as a case at law. That was the Pharisees. They were experts in the law. They were better than everybody else because they knew the law. They obeyed the law. They, they tithed their cumin and, and their, their thyme and their parsley. They, they tithed right down to their very spices in their spice closet. It was a series of proofs. Life was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart. Then what a good lover you are. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or how powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see... Y'all are paused on the good lover. Did I actually say that? Yeah. Get over it. Just let's move on here. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. That was me. I was presumptuous. Presumptuous. That one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be justified. You see, that's what we're looking for. When someone's virtue signaling because they take up this cause, they want to be justified. They want to be just. We want to be just so that we can be at peace. I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. You see, this place of fragile ownership of your salvation is a very very insecure place to be. 
I think now that was my disaster. That's when it really began. I began to look to the day when I could stand before the bench, but I looked up and I saw the bench was empty. No judge in sight. Pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. You see, there in that place where you're justifying yourself, there's no verdict there. Why? Because God has already pronounced the verdict. And he pronounced it and took out the consequences on somebody else. We'll get there in a minute. So I was tired of being in that fragile place of virtue signaling and people pleasing. And so I pitched it. I said, forget it. I'm not going to be a rule follower. I'm going to be a rule breaker. Let's try that out. I'm going to be a rule breaker. I'm going to make my own rules. And so I began to take huge risks with my life. Huge risks. Now, I thought about things, examples that I could give you, and I decided that I couldn't give you any examples <laughs> because that would be bad uh, for some of our young people. Well, he survived. I'll try it. No. Just use your imagination and then double it. I took big risks. I was in this band called Rude Awakening, and then I was in another band. Yeah, Rude Awakening. Let that sink in. That was my band. It was the punk era, right? I was the drummer. And uh, I was in another band called the Brats, and I was, I was running around with people in their 20s all over. I mean, I was in my teens, and I was running around with people in their 20s all over Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill. We were opening for for names that you would know. We played in a stadium one time, and it was, I, I thought that I was going to have this sort of rock and roll career. And then um, chaos began to set in. I blew my knee out, had to have it reconstructed. I, I broke both bones in my right ankle, had to have surgery on that. I, I wrecked my car uh, doing something really stupid. And um, you're like, this guy is our pastor? Yeah, that's right. All of this chaos began to close around me. And then, and then something really, really disturbing happened to our family. One night, I was out at our lake cabin, and we got a call. And my dad began to weep. I had never seen him in this state before. And so my older brother was hit by a drunk driver. And, and, and so they... They kept him alive for us to be able to go down and say goodbye to him. But I remember on the drive down, in the car on the way to Myrtle Beach, I remember turning to God and I remember saying, uh, where are you? And I remember an overwhelming sense of peace. To be in a place of utter terror and then suddenly to know God's peace, my life began to change. Now, I didn't yet make the connection between my brokenness and the cross. But this mustard seed that was planted about my brokenness and Jesus' substitute 
in my place for my brokenness, that mustard seed of faith, that began to grow. And I began to recognize that there is a God and it is not me. It took some of the natural consequences of this world of being a rule breaker. You know, I've said this a number of times, and why do I say it? What's behind it? I, I, I say, you don't so much break God's law as you do break yourself on it. And sometimes the natural consequences that are built into the law are good for us. When we do things that, that are bad for us and they hurt, that's a good thing. When we enter into chaos and we make a mess of things, that should get our attention. When you become a rule breaker and you begin to to plow your own path as the prodigal son did, you begin to see that that's not good enough. I've I've told this story before, but this captures it. I have to tell it again. Dr. Laura Schlesinger, radio personality, you know, she she wrote a bunch of books. She uh, she uh, just a few years ago, there were some very very disturbing pictures that were floating around the internet about her, and she did not deny it. She said this. She said, "When I was young, I was my own moral authority. The inadequacy of that is painfully obvious today." Is that not amazing? It's the most amazing things I've ever heard a public figure say. To take ownership of it. So the prodigal son was sitting there and he had wasted everything, right? In reckless living, that's where the word comes from. We call it the prodigal son because what defined his life when he took everything was squandering a recklessness, reckless living. And so there he was, he had nothing, and he, and he was trying to, he was longing to fill his stomach with, with the food that he was feeding to pigs. And then it said, and then when he came to himself. That's one of the most amazing phrases in scripture. He came to himself. What does that mean? What do you think that means? Think about it for just a minute. What does it mean to come to yourself? What did it mean for me to come to myself? There I was, I was trying to to find life, to find the good life on my own terms. And then I came to myself. There is a God, and it is not me. I don't like everything that God is doing. I have questions. Kierkegaard said some people ask questions in order to remove meaning and leave an emptiness behind. Those were the kinds of questions I was asking. We see this today. The chaos of lifestyles, the chaos of worldviews, the chaos within our universities of the way that people are framing life up is very intentional. Why is it there? Why do people want chaos? Why do people want to change and and dismantle some of the things that have, have been proven to create the just and equitable society that isn't perfect, but we have a shot at it? The system that we have of freedom to be able to look at the things that are inequitable and say, that's not right, let's change it. Why would we fundamentally dismantle the foundational thing? Why would we do that? Because because when we begin to create chaos in the culture, guess what happens? I can hide there. The stupid things I've done, the crazy things I've done, I can hide in that chaos. It's very intentional what's happening today. To dismantle the places of foundation so that 
when everybody's in chaos, then my chaos doesn't look so bad. That's where it's showing up. And that's, those are the kinds of questions that I was asking. I was asking questions, question after question after question, doubt after doubt after doubt, in order to leave an emptiness behind. And then I began to wake up. I remember the night when I, was, uh, I realized I made the connection between my brokenness and the cross. I had a, an, a growing sense. Now God had met me in the car ride down to see my brother. And I believe that that was a place where I began to turn. I began to say, there's a God and it is not me. And he began to bring to mind and heart all of those things I already knew. I began to come to myself. God has made me for him. And my heart was restless until it began to rest in him. And I remember the night I had this vision of the cross. I I had an overwhelming Psalm 51 conviction of my sin. And there's that, that line in Psalm 51 that says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And in that moment of, of repentance, I felt the worst I'd ever felt in my whole life, but the greatest relief and release that I ever felt in my life. There was a, there was a powerful connection and repentance between the way that I had been going, turning to another way, and realizing that my brokenness had already had a word spoken over it, and that word is forgiven. The condition is what we have to deal with. Not all the little sins that distract us, but the condition. And so then I began to become not a rule follower, not a rule breaker, but a follower of the rule maker the ruler. I began to have a ruler in my life, not me. You know, uh, Mike Mason said that uh, uh, a man is like a densely populated city. For something new to be built, something old must be torn down. Isn't that a beautiful image? It is when what's being built in place is a new city, a new Jerusalem. You say, I believe that God... God is saying through the scriptures, he's saying, I'm not trying to get you into heaven, but I'm trying to get heaven into you. I'm trying to bring the kingdom of God into your life so that where you are, I will be. There's going to be a day when, when where he is, we will be, but for the time being, he's bringing the kingdom into your life. He's bringing the mustard seed to life, to grow and to flourish, and such that, that even the birds can come and, and nest You're creating, you're being recreated, and you're creating room in your life for other people to experience the same grace that saved you. And that's it. That's what life's all about. Coming to yourself, finding what it means to be free, to be a full human being. It doesn't happen all at once. You know, we think of Paul as having this template and, and, and he, was, he was killing tr- Christians one day and he was planting churches the next day. It didn't even happen that way for Paul. I mean, the scales fell from his eye, but he couldn't even speak. And somebody had to train him for years and years. You look at the rest of the apostles, it looks a little bit more like me. They, they, they were with Jesus. They understood who Jesus was. Peter even walked on water for heaven's sakes and then he denies Christ. 
You say, how is that possible? If, 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 if he knows Jesus, how is it possible? Because we continue to turn again and again to put ourselves at the center of life. And so you see at the very end, the father running to the son. Do you believe that God so loved the world that he ran in this parable? He lifts up, he lifts up his robe. This was a very undignified thing to do in that day and age. Older men did not run. He lifts up his robe while he was still far off. So many of you are thrown because you don't have a day and date conversion experience. You don't have a vision of the cross like I just described. That's not the thing. Here's the thing. While you're still far off. He sees you. He's been waiting for you. The light has been on. He's been on the front porch. His arms are open wide. He's waiting for you to come home. And maybe that's you this morning. Do you believe that what the scriptures describe of God is true? That while you're still far off, still in your sins, Romans 5 says, Christ died. You have a father in heaven who's waiting for you to come home. Again and again and again. Let's pray to him now. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would help us to find our heart's true home. Even more this morning, for those of us who believe and have been following you all our lives, God, even more this morning, to be found by you and to find in you a father like the one described, a father who loves the self-righteous one, a father who loved the one who was ready... For his own father to pass away so that he could have life on his own. That's the kind of love you have for us. When we we stare into your face and we say, we don't want anything to do with you, yet you call to us. God, this morning, for every heart, every mind, every soul in this place, whether we're beginning, uh, when we haven't, haven't begun a our journey with you, our walk with you, or whether we've been walking with you for a long time, find us in this moment. Speak that word, that simple word, forgiven over our lives again. And may we lay claim to it the way we sit in a chair, not just looking at it and saying it could hold my weight, but releasing those ways that we try to make life work for us apart from you and and coming to rest, to be still, and to know it's you, our God, our good, good Father. Amen.